It is always such a joy and an excitement anytime I get to open up the Word with you, church family, and I am extremely grateful to Pastor Chris for letting me fill in while he is out on family vacation. And so uh, we're going to have a good time this morning. I hope you've come ready to hear from the Lord because anytime we open up His Word, that is what He is speaking to us right now. With power, with might, it pierces our hearts. And so I hope you have come ready with open hands and open heart as have I, to open up his word and see what he has this morning. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I need to give you a little bit of a background from the Old Testament. And uh, there's, if you're like me and you've grown up in a church as a child, there are certain Bible stories that you just know. The A-list Bible stories, Noah's Ark, Moses parting the Red Sea, Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, David and Goliath. Uh, You've got Jonah and the whale, you've got Daniel and the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but had we grown up in Jesus' day as Jewish boys and girls, we would have known those stories, but there are other stories we would have known and clung to that often, uh, as 21st century Americans, we might be prone, at least I know I am, to overlook So among those would be passages like Exodus 16, where Israel is in the wilderness, and they've come out of Egypt, they're in a place, they have no food, it's totally barren, it's just them, and they cry out, God, how will you feed us? And so God produces bread supernaturally every morning, manna from heaven to sustain them, and God provides for his people. Moses tells them what's going to happen, but God provides. We would have known stories like 2 Kings chapter 4, where Elisha and, and some prophets have just avoided being poisoned by some poisonous stew, and they're all hungry, and a man has 20 loaves of bread, and Elijah speaking, uh, the Lord speaks to Elijah, and he tells them, you set the bread on the table, and as you set it on the table, prophets, you eat. And somehow a hundred prophets ate on 20 loaves of bread and were completely and totally full. God supernaturally multiplied the bread. There are these stories in the Old Testament of God supernaturally providing bread, the most basic food need in our lives, for his people. And it's on this backdrop that we come to this miracle in Matthew 14, chapter 13. And Matthew's writing to likely a Jewish audience. At this point in the book of Matthew, he is showing the shift in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has been proclaiming who he is to the public, and now we start to turn where Jesus is going to hone in in this last year before he goes to the Passion Week on his disciples, making sure they're ready and prepared for when he's gone. So here's where we are, Matthew 14, verse 13. Here's what it says. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place. That's to a place that's desolate, a wilderness, by himself. And when the people, the crowds heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. That word compassion meaning to be deeply affected in the core of one's being. Jesus saw these crowds and was moved, was stirred so deeply with compassion. Compassion is when you look out on on someone who is hurting And you feel their pain with them, but you don't simply feel their pain with them. You actually take action to alleviate the pain and the problem. This is a word that is only used of Christ or about Christ. And he acts to give real help. We know from Mark's account of this story that Jesus felt compassion because as he looked out on the crowds, he saw that they were sheep 
without a shepherd. They had come. Jesus has withdrawn with his disciples. We also know from Mark there's two things that have happened to cause his withdrawal. One, they've been in a busy season of ministry. Mark says so busy that they haven't even had time to eat. And then we know from Matthew what's just happened is John the Baptist, Jesus' biological cousin, likely childhood friend and playmate, has just been killed by King Herod, has just been beheaded. And so Jesus pulls away, recognizing he and his disciples' need for rest, his need for rest, potentially even his need to grieve the loss of a loved one. And so they go away to a place where they're going to be alone, but the crowds have come seeking them out. The crowds they have been busy ministering to come and cause an interruption in their plans and in their time. And so Jesus spends the day healing their sick, attending to their needs. And look in verse 15. Here's the problem, though. When it was evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, this place is desolate. We're in the middle of nowhere. The hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And you know they were truly in nowhere, because that word villages, if you go to Israel today and you see the town of Capernaum, it's not big. It's small. You can uh, probably fit the whole thing inside of a track. But that was a town. This word for villages means there may have been two or three tents and a couple people living there. They were truly somewhere on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of nowhere, and the disciples come with this problem. Jesus, we've got all these people. The hour's late. It's getting dark. They're hungry. They've got to make long journeys back. You need to send them away now. And, and their appeal to Christ really is an urgent appeal. They're coming on pretty strong. It's not just, Jesus, you might think about it. It's Jesus. You've got to get them out. You, you've got the power. Send them away. And so here's what Jesus says. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. The disciples said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish. So Jesus said, bring them here to me. Jesus gives them a problem. He says, hey, I'm not going to send them away. You feed them. You take care of their issue. And they say, we can't. We can't feed this group. We have enough food to maybe feed two men. Maybe we cannot feed this large crowd, which we don't know how large it is yet in Matthew. He hadn't gotten to it yet, but it's, we'll see in a second. They don't have the ability. And so Jesus says, all right, here's the solution. You bring what you have. You bring it to me. So verse 19, he orders the people to sit down on the grass. And he takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looks up to heaven and he, he uh, blesses the food. He breaks the bread and then he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were satisfied. And then the disciples picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. Now there were about 5,000 men who ate, in addition to the women and children. So you have Jesus say, bring me the food. And he takes the food, he looks up to heaven, he prays a traditional blessing over the food, and he breaks the food, and he proceeds to give the food to the disciples. And notice the pattern. The disciples come to Christ, Christ hands them the food, and then the disciples take the food out, and they hand it to the people. In Luke's account, it says that the, it, it's a continual process. It's not Jesus gave it one time, but he's continually breaking the bread and giving it to them. And somehow, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish as only God can and he feeds a group of people that's about 5,000 men but that's not counting the women and children so I just give you an idea of this crowd I did some rough estimating if three-fourths of that crowd of men were married and they all had in between one and two children which I think that's a pretty low estimate for traditional Jewish families back at that time 
there would have been at minimum 30 to 40,000 people in that crowd that Jesus continues to just pass out and multiplies this food and gives to the disciples, and they give it. In fact, they don't just give some. This is not just that. They get a little bit of a snack to make it back. Notice what it says. It says they were completely satisfied, verse 20, meaning they were totally full. They lacked. There was no hunger. Not only that, but they had so much food left over that there were 12 baskets filled to the brim. You couldn't put any more bread in those baskets. Those 12 baskets symbolizing the nation of Israel and what Jesus is trying to show through this miracle. It's a, it's a Bible story that we all know and are familiar with, this story where Jesus and the disciples are seeking to be alone. The crowds follow. Jesus moved with compassion at this interruption. All of a sudden multiplies food in mass to them. Set on the backdrop of the Old Testament where God supernaturally provides food for his people. The crowds we know from John's account did not miss it. Now they don't totally understand it, but they at least got This is a man who does what God has done for Israel, except where Moses and Elijah simply told how God was going to provide the bread. We just watched this man take the bread, bless it, and he multiplied the bread. And so you come through this miracle and you find what Christ is is proving and demonstrating to all who are in this crowd and to us as we come and we open up Scripture, a book of history, And we see it on the pages of history that there was this moment 2,000 years ago where Jesus on the slopes of the wilderness and the Sea of Galilee takes bread and multiplies it and demonstrates to all in that crowd that he is the one true Messiah, the one that they have been looking for, the one that the Old Testament prophesies to. He is the one true Messiah, and because he is, he can satisfy all need. It's the 12 baskets He can't just satisfy some need. He is good enough to satisfy the need of all Israel. He's going to feed 4,000 people later on, and that's going to be seven baskets, meaning he satisfies the need of all, the whole world. This is Jesus. Jesus is not just another religious leader. He's not another prophet. He's not a good man. He's not a, a cultural revolutionary. He's not one of many ways. He is the only way. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the uncreated one. He is the one through whom all things have been created, for whom all things have been created. He is the Lamb who was slain. He is the risen. He is the lion. He is the one who is returning. He is the true Messiah. And he is not simply the true Messiah in theory. He's proven it out on the pages of history. There is an empty tomb in Israel today, a known tomb, because Jesus wasn't buried in a grave of thieves. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man where everyone knew where it was. It is empty, and if we were to take the evidence of his resurrection, of of the historical facts of what is there to a court of law, even in a court of law by secular standards, the evidence is so strong we could only conclude that he is risen which means he is the king. Because he's the king, he satisfies all need. We need to understand today Jesus is the Messiah, and he has the ability to satisfy all need. There is no need he cannot satisfy. There is no need he lacks the power to satisfy, and there is no true need that he lacks the heart and the compassion and the desire to satisfy. The world promises 
every beck and call that it will bring fulfillment in your life and my life if we will just take what it has to offer. The problem is Ecclesiastes and all of Scripture says eternity has been set on our hearts, and that which is temporal and finite cannot satisfy that which is eternal. You and I have been made for a creator. We cannot be satisfied by anyone but Christ. You have a need to be loved. Christ loves you so much he gave his only life. The Father gave his only Son. You have a need to be known. It says that Jesus knows your name. He knows the hairs on your head. He knew you before you were born. Psalm says that his thoughts about you and I are more than we could count. He thinks of us so often. You have a need for guidance. He gives wisdom and direction for anyone who asks in faith. You have a need for purpose. He's the one who made you and I, and he is the only, the only one who can give us purpose. And you and I are prone in this world to forget that he alone is the true Messiah, and he is the one who satisfies. But because he is and because he satisfies, there's two ways we have to apply this out of this text today. One, do you know the satisfaction of his salvation? Do you know the satisfaction of his salvation? He is declaring to these crowds, I am the Messiah. And as the Messiah, he has come not to, uh, to fix this world, but to save us from what has broken this world, to save us from our sin. And in this place today, inevitably, some of you are in the position of the crowd. You are sheep without a shepherd. You do not know Christ in salvation. And, and you need to understand today that simple mental assent, simply knowing the facts and checking the boxes is not enough to save you. James says the demons know those facts and they shudder. If we were to go to John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, we see that the crowd recognizes Jesus as someone different. But just a few verses later, they reject him. So simply having a mental knowledge is not enough to save you. There has to be a response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The conviction that you and I are fundamentally a sinner. We walk in a way that is wrong, in a way that is in rebellion to our Creator. But our Creator who has loved us so has sent His one and only Son so that in response to this conviction, we would cease trying to save ourselves or, or judge our lives by how good or how bad we are, but we would place full rest and faith and trust in His Son, in Jesus' perfect life, in His sacrificial death, and in His victorious resurrection. And so we place faith, we, we renounce, we repent of this way, we turn and we rest ourselves fully as you are resting the fullness of yourself in that chair right now. You are exercising faith in that chair and that's the faith you must exercise in Christ. And this faith in Christ is one where you accept God for who he is and embrace the path and the call that he has for our lives. The crowds would miss this. Mental assent is not saving faith, but also understand when we say Jesus fills all need, this passage is not promising that he is going to give you and I health, wealth, and prosperity. John chapter 6, the same miracle takes place. The crowds are in awe. They say this is the prophet who is to come, but they come back around and they want more the next day. But their focus is simply on his power to provide them daily food. And when Jesus tells them what the cost of following him is, when he tells them, no, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to know what it means for me to be your Messiah, you're going to have to eat my, blood and or eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that crowd of 30 to 40,000, every last one will reject Christ. 
And it says that the only people who remain are the 12 disciples. And Jesus says, are you going to go? Are you going to leave me too? And they say, how could we? You have the words of life. So we need to understand that Christ's way is not our way. That when you and I come to faith in Christ, it is taking on who he is. It is, it is dying to ourselves. We have been crucified with Christ and now we live We have been raised to newness in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You and I must accept him on his terms for who he is and what that means in our lives. We repent and by faith receive his grace and are saved. Some of you today, you do not know Christ. You've checked the boxes. Or maybe it was simply just, I want to get out of hell for free. Hear my plea today. There will be people who come before Christ one day who say, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he will look at them and say, I don't know you. Depart from me. Because doing things and a mental recognition that Jesus is Lord is not the same as taking my faith, repenting from my sin and resting fully on him as Lord. But if we know the satisfaction of his salvation, something comes with that. And this is really the primary point of the text. So you may not know, we are often to forget, I did not know this until uh, setting a different uh, different account several years ago. But the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle of Christ recorded in all four Gospels. It had an incredible significance on the writers of the gospel, so much so that it was recorded in each, that the Holy Spirit moved on them to record it in each. And as you go through the text, we've talked a lot about the crowds, but really the main character is Christ, and the main people he's teaching are actually his disciples. So what's the point? Well, if you and I know the satisfaction of his salvation, then we need to understand, we need to know the satisfaction of his sufficiency, his ability to give us what we need to do his ministry that he's entrusted to us. Now I realize that's a long wordy statement, so we're going to break it down a little bit. He is able to satisfy what we need to do his ministry that he's entrusted to us. When we come to faith in him, we need to understand there is a ministry that has now been entrusted to us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, speaks of the ministry of reconciliation, that he has sent us into this world as ambassadors, as people who are not of this world. You and I are not American now that we're in Christ. Yes, we're American by physical citizenship, but we are true citizens of heaven, and we live in this country as ambassadors representing our true king, living by the ways of heaven. And we live in this world proclaiming the message of reconciliation, That you who are a sinner who are estranged from God can be reconciled, brought back into oneness with God. The ministry of reconciliation, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, says that God has given to the church, uh, apostles, prophets, uh, missionaries, pastors, for this purpose, the equipping of the saints for ministry. And it says that that ministry is the building up of the body. You and I need to understand, fellow believer, brother and sister, that you in Christ, God has entrusted you with a ministry. A ministry in this world to reach lost men and women and a ministry to the body of Christ to build up the body of Christ. So the question we must ask is, is the world simply a place where I pursue things and dreams or is it a field where I fish for the souls of men? Is the church simply a place I come and a service I attend? Or is it a family to which I belong and I fellowship with? Is it a body that I actively serve and seek to build up? You and I have been entrusted with a ministry. 
When you join the church, Pastor Chris talks about, we ask that you find one place in the life of the church to serve. God has called you to a ministry. No one in this room is exempt. If you are in Christ, God has called you to minister. And we understand this ministry that's been entrusted to us, though it's not our ministry, it's his ministry. Notice in the story, the disciples didn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we should really feed these people. The disciples said, get them out of here. It's his ministry. Jesus is the star of this passage. Jesus is the one who says, feed them. It's his ministry. And and what's that going to mean? If we embrace the fact that the ministry we've been called to is his ministry, it's going to mean a couple things. It's going to mean it demands selflessness. Look at the text. Jesus is tired. He's grieving. His disciples are tired. They are desperate for a moment alone. He was not setting out to intentionally do a miracle here. They're interrupted. It's going to demand selflessness with your time, with my time. Ministry is is a life filled with interruptions. Rarely is ministry going to happen when we expect it to or when we plan for it to. But it's not our time. The time I have isn't my time. It all belongs to the Lord anyways. So if we're going to embrace his ministry, we're going to have to be selfless with our time. We're going to have to be selfless with ourselves and our resources. Look back at the text. Jesus says, you feed them. And they say, well, all we have are these five loaves and two fish. Well, this isn't a miracle of Christian uh, uh, socialism. Those five loaves and two fish belonged to someone. Someone did the work to buy those, to, to, to make those, to catch those. But catch this. If the disciples don't bring the food to Jesus, the miracle doesn't happen. Not because Jesus lacks the power and not because Jesus lacks the heart, but because his disciples refuse to obey. There is a lot of ministry out there in the world today that is not getting done, but it's not getting done not because God lacks the power or because God lacks the heart. It's because we don't heed his call to do it. It's going to demand selflessness with our resources, with ourselves. It's going to demand, if it's his ministry, compassion. We saw that. Jesus looks out with compassion, this powerful word. He looks out on the crowds and he sees both their physical need, they're hungry, they're, they're hurting, they need healing, but he ultimately sees their true need, their lostness, their sheep without a shepherd. They lack any kind of leadership and all their spiritual leaders have failed them. He's filled with compassion. When you look at this world, is your heart ever broken at the neediness, specifically the spiritual deadness of this world. Or when you and I look out at the world, when we turn on the news, is the only thing we feel bitterness, indignation, and fear. Because if that is all we feel when we look out on the world, and yes, that means people who agree with us, and that means people who have the polar opposite views, do we ever have compassion Because we recognize that even those who drastically disagree with us, it is because they are lost. They are enslaved to a power they can't resist. Satan has put a veil over their eyes, 2 Corinthians. Do we have compassion? And if we have compassion, if if we do that as he does it, it's going to lead to this. We're going to meet real needs. And this means sometimes ministry is actually about meeting real tangible physical needs. James says, if a brother comes to you and says, I am hungry, don't pray for him and say, be blessed and be warm, but feed him food. Sometimes ministry is meeting real physical needs. Jesus meets the real physical need in this text. He meets it. He sees they're sick, they're broken, he heals them. He sees they're hungry, he feeds them. 
Ministry is going to mean meeting real needs. Compassion is not just simply what I feel, but it's acting to do something. So if I'm compassionate, I will meet real needs. But it also means that it's never only about just the physical needs. Jesus never lost sight of the real need here. The real need was a crowd of 40,000 people who needed a Messiah. We live in a world of 7 billion. At best estimates, there are realistically 5 billion people in this world who have no Messiah today whom Jesus loves. Do, do we meet real needs? Do we go after them? Ministry, if we do it, Jesus' ministry means we're going to minister to all people, including those who are overlooked. Look back at the text. Look at the very end. It says there were about 5,000 men, verse 21, besides women and children. The mention of women and children is significant because women and children didn't get counted in those countings. So the fact that Matthew mentions them is a, is, is a clue. Jesus saw all people, not just the people society counted, but he saw all people. You and I, when we do ministry, a ministry has been entrusted to us. If we do his ministry, recognizing it's his, we have to minister to the people God has sovereignly placed in our circle. Ministry cannot only be to the people you think are cool or the people who are easy to relate to or the people who, uh, this idea that if we would just win the quarterback, we could really reach the school. Maybe. But what if the chess club is ripe and desperate for the gospel? And what if God would do what he so often does, which is to take the things that we in society look down upon and use them to change the world for his sake? You and I have to minister to all people. No one is away. All must be reached. We cannot dictate. And ultimately, we need to understand this about his ministry. His ministry is about himself. It's not about us. We don't minister to feel better about ourselves. We don't minister to be liked. We don't minister to people in order to have a following. If we make a disciple of ourselves, we have failed. We are about making disciples of Christ. This is exactly what they came in John 3. John the Baptist has this big ministry, and all of a sudden now his ministry shrinks. They're going to Jesus, and his disciples say, John, how do you feel about this? And what is John's reply? I must decrease. He must increase. Because he is the Messiah. We need to understand it's about him. You don't need today my opinion about this text. You need Jesus and what he meant when he did this and wrote this text. So we've been entrusted with a ministry. It's his ministry, which is going to mean some things. But ultimately, this text says that when we know what we've been given a ministry, we understand it's his ministry. Here's what we can understand. He is sufficient to enable us to do it. God is rarely going to call you and I to a ministry that we think we are sufficient for. When you come to this, this passage, realize the disciples. Jesus tells the disciples, feed the people. And the disciples are limited in every way. They're limited by resources. They don't have enough food to feed the people. They're limited financially. They don't have the money to go buy the food to feed the people. They're limited geographically. They're in such a remote place that even if they had the money, they couldn't go to a town and get the food. They're limited by time. Because they're so remote, they don't have enough time in the day to go get it. Rarely will Jesus, in fact, I would say never, Jesus always calls us to a ministry that we're going to feel inadequate for. He just told the disciples several chapters earlier, hey, you, uh, you backwater fishermen from a tiny little place in the world, you're going to be dragged before kings and governors for my sake. But don't you be afraid. I'm going to make you sufficient to do it. God calls us to ministry that we will feel inadequate for, that we might feel afraid of. 1 Corinthians 1 says that God says, remember your calling. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are rich. Not many of you are strong. But God has chose what is weak to shame the strong. 
what is foolish to shame the wise, the things that are not to shame the things that are. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. Listen to this, what it says. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. God has called you and I to a ministry. It is a ministry that is going to make you and I feel intimidated, feel frightened. It's going to be a ministry that sometimes puts us in places that we just go, I don't know what to do. But the right response is not to shrink back in fear. It is to know that my sufficiency is in Christ. Christ has made me adequate. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of me. And Jesus is not concerned or not afraid or not worried about the size of the task that he sets in front of you. Now that ministry may be something as simple as just the ministry you have to your family. That could be as big as God is stirring on your heart something, a need you see in the Brazos Valley, and God has moved on your heart to do it. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord, but God has called you to minister, and he is able to make you sufficient for that ministry. Some of you in this room, you're tired. You're actively pouring out, and you need to know Christ is sufficient to continue to fill you up, to continue to pour out as you seek to rest along the way. Some of you, you're not pouring out. And the challenge from the word today is embrace the ministry God has called you to and know that whatever excuse you and I would come up with to not, to not do so, Christ has said he's adequate for. Christ has said he is the one who enables us to do the ministry. This is exactly what you see in the passage. It's not the disciples who caused the miracle to happen. It's Christ who's making the bread. The key is that the disciples keep coming back and rely on Christ to get the bread to give to the people. This is the pattern for our ministry. This is the pattern, and, and the world is in desperate need that we heed this call and that we obey. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to enter into a time of invitation. And I just would encourage you as we take that time, we do it every week. Take time with your heads bowed and your eyes closed to right now, where is God stirring? Are you the crowd? You, you do not have a Messiah. You do not have a real relationship with Christ. Man, today is the day of salvation. Respond. Do you say, I'm a follower of Christ. I know Christ, but I'm not engaged in his ministry. Man, listen to the Spirit today. Listen in this time of invitation. If you need to respond, respond. Get up. The physical movement doesn't make your response more but sometimes it's needed to cement your response. We'll be down here at the front if you need us to pray or to, to answer questions or to walk you through how to know Christ. But please may we not hear his word today and just forget it. He is the true Messiah. He satisfies all our needs. Know the satisfaction of his salvation and know his ability to satisfy your and I's every need to do ministry. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. And one day we're going to stand in front of you and we're going to see just how glorious and how able and how capable you are to do all things. So God, forgive us uh, in the church when we too easily look to ourselves for our adequacy in ministry. When we look to ourselves to see if we'll be able to do the ministry. And God, this is not a text about attempting big things. It is a text about a passage that says you are the Messiah, so Lord, we want to be obedient to feed who you've called us to feed. 
Holy Spirit, you move today. May hearts be responsive to you. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, as the Lord leads you today to respond, please do so.